Hello, everybody. This is Colin. I'm Ethan. I'm John. And this is Three Boys, One Pod. Ice water turn Atlantic. Night calling in a phantom. Back up to three members of the podcast. Turns out John was just in a coma and not actually dead. Yeah, uh, you know, back. F- uh, uh, coma after Thanksgiving resulted in uh, some complications later on down the line. Playing basketball, shooting some hoops. Food coma hit him. He was out. Uh, luckily, John came back from us from paradise. Uh, he did not go to uh, Dar al Salah. So, uh, Our brother is back from Jannah. Uh, thankfully, uh, thankfully uh, we have him back. Yes. So, uh, first things first. We're going to respond to a question by a viewer from last episode. Uh, Spencer Glatt uh, asked us, how often since the American Revolution, soldiers have had to be quartered in homes? Now, he maintains that it's never. Uh, He goes on to say that war has not made it to the United States mainland, in exception of the Civil War since then. He asks how this is relevant and important. As uh, due to the military power and resources we have in today's world, Colin, I, uh, I'd like you to respond to this. All right. So first, uh, allow me to provide some context. Uh, this was a, a question in response to me stating in our, our last episode that I thought the Third Amendment was the most important. So uh, we can take this question piece by piece. So the first question is, when have soldiers ever been stationed in homes? And the answer is never. And we can thank the Third Amendment for that. So that solves that problem. And yes, so the answer is never. It's because of the Third Amendment. It's because we have this restriction on our government that they've never been quartered in homes. And, and then he goes on to ask, um, when since the Civil War has war ever made to the mainland? And I'll break this up into two parts. The first part being, if we didn't have the Civil War, if we didn't have the Third Amendment during the Civil War, what would have stopped Abraham Lincoln from stationing soldiers in people's homes, right? We actually look at the Civil War as being one of the times in which presidential power was substantially it greater, right? And there's a serious threat that President Lincoln could have posed to our liberties if he had stationed troops in our homes, right? Um, he suspended habeas corpus during the time of the Civil War. So first of all, your, your right to, you know, a trial and everything and, and the, the due process within uh, trials and whatnot, he's already suspending. So he's already suspended habeas corpus, but with this Third Amendment restriction in place, he's not placing soldiers in our homes to silence um, our voices. And then we move on to when has war ever reached the homeland. And, you know, I will admit that, yes, war has never reached the homeland, except if you look at the war on terror, which is another great example. I mean, what would stop someone from wanting to station troops in the homes of people in New York because there was a potential for a terrorist attack? And and forget, and, and I think a lot of people forget when they ask me, um... Uh, you know, we have to understand the Third Amendment includes times of peace. So it, it's not just a restriction on when soldiers are going on at home. It's a restriction when we're at a time of peace, right? The Third Amendment plays an incredibly important role. And I think the fact that it's never been abridged, that we don't have cases about it, shows its power. And that, you know, I'm just trying to reiterate the same points I, I brought before. Um, so, yeah. I think that was very profound. Um, instead of looking as this towards the Third Amendment as something that is archaic and uh, uh, from another age and that it's not useful anymore, we should thank the Third Amendment in an age of expanding powers of the executive and an expanding federal government to kind of protect us from that. 
moving on to the topic of today's podcast, we will be talking about law enforcement in the United States. Basically, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, three main topics, police brutality in the United States, uh, anti-gang units in the United States, and police response times. Now, first, uh, John, would you like to bring up uh, your information on police response times? Yes, well, um, since, uh, I mean, police response times aren't necessarily uh, very fast. I believe they could be faster. And um, according to uh, sheriffs.org, the um, the average, uh, like, I'm just going to give an example. Like, right. let's say a school shooting, right? Since um, it, the average school shooting, according to sheriffs.org, lasts 12 and a half minutes. Well, the average police response time is 18 minutes. So, uh, obviously, there's a problem there, and there has to be, you know, a fix to that. And there are a couple apps that are uh, helping to fix that, such as Hero 911, which uh, 911 is alerted through that app, and it uh, gives them immediate access to uh, their location, and it just gives them a faster it just gives them more information and lets the police get there as quick as possible. And I think an interesting thing about this um, Hero 911 app that uh, John brings up is that it actually it, it connects people that are like off-duty officers. So, um, like if even if they're uh, off-duty or in a different jurisdiction, they're still made aware of situations. Like, um, I think that's kind of particularly important because the issue of response times is twofold. It's not just responding like knowing that an incident is going down it's also having the resources to respond um if you'll allow me to bring up a, a kind of a relevant example we look at israel right israel has a system which pe private citizens can uh take little pizza scooters that have first uh, aid kits in them and through an app they can be connected to places that need first aid and this system has led response times to be 90 seconds in jerusalem and that's why it's important it, it, democratizing um emergency medical services is uh one of the key things uh, or, or just emergency services in general is the key things to cutting down on response times and i think that one of the important innovations in police response times in the past five in almost 10 years would be the advent of the internet in uh, kind of in relation to kind of police dispatch. Because with the advent of the internet in situations where you can't make a phone call and you can't tell the dispatcher what's going on, you can uh, provide not just your location and not just the, uh, you know, where the police need to get to you, but any relevant information as to you know what's going on. You know, is yeah. there a shooter? Is your wife beating? Something like that. Um, moving. Wait, wait, wait. Ethan, did you just say, is your wife beating you? I, I thought domestic violence always went the other way around. Or well, not always, but often went the other way you around. Know, Colin, it's 2018, and the notion that uh, women are the only like uh, victims of domestic abuse is uh, quite, frankly, uh, quite frankly uh, disgusting and archaic and deserves to be left in the past. Men are victims too. And they deserve to be uh, fought for, and they deserve to have a voice. And if I have to be that voice, I will be that voice. I'm going to let Ethan uh, also talk about police brutality. Okay, so 
I'm going to be honest. America has a problem. Okay, thank you, Ethan, for admitting to that. I know that you have a your little bit of an issue. Uh, the number of deaths, uh, police involved shootings, uh, is going up. It's increasing, which is a problem. Uh, disproportionate amounts of African American citizens are being killed by police officers. This is something that we have to look into. And I think initiatives that are being taken by some police departments where they're looking, they're incentivizing their officers to use non-lethal alternatives to pulling out their firearms and uh, killing people. Uh, I think those are admirable. Uh, obviously, we can't, uh, we can't interfere with the police officer's right to defend themselves and act accordingly, but you have to balance that out with the appropriate amount of force. Do I support taking the guns away from the cops? No, of course not. They need them to do their jobs. However, I think that we have to look into this and maybe look, make some changes. So you think that, I mean, because I, I don't think it's too radical of an idea to take the firearm away from uh, a cop on a beat, right? Like, obviously, it's okay. It, you should have a gun in your car, like if you have to respond to uh, a mass shooting or a bank robbery. But if you're walking a beat in a in a neighborhood, I don't think a, I don't think a gun's necessary, right? I think that what encourages violence against cops is violence that cops propagate, right? If we look at if we look at you know brutality aimed at the police, you know, in response to Ferguson, it's a response to violence that cops have committed. I think I think that we're kind of entrapped in this cycle where cops feel like they're under attack and, and they either feel like they can't do their jobs or they take more radical methods to complete their job. And and I think that it's I, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a cop only issue. I think it's a societal issue, right? I think that we need to on part, the police need to realize that they have a systemic issue. Society needs to stop demonizing cops, and we kind of have to come together and ask, like, what what is it that we could do to make policing better, right? Policing is a necessary thing in our society, right? As much as we hate being told what the law is, it's the law. You know, John, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, well, you know, police brutality is obviously a problem, and uh, I really don't think, uh, you know, taking away guns, I sat with these on this one, I don't think taking away guns from cops is necessarily... The, not really necessarily the um, the problem solver here, but I mean it could help. But I don't think that's really the answer to the question that we're looking for. I'd almost like to tie it in to the last subject that we talked about. If you take the firearms away from the police officers, that could have a negative impact on how quickly they can respond to any given situation. Does it though? You remove the tool that they need. To do their job and make I said I said taking a gun. Car. I said talking and taking a gun with you on a beat. A beat. If they're walking a beat and they're faced with a situation where they would need their firearm. Name a situation that you would need when you're walking a beat. Someone comes up and attacks you, or they see someone. Yeah, but you do realize that you walk beats in pairs, so your partner can provide you support. Like, let's say someone comes up to you and stabs you. Right. Your partner. Whips out a taser and taser that person. I, I, I genuinely do not believe that unless you are actively trying to kill lots of people, that you should be shot. I, I don't even think people that – I think that everybody should be tried for their crime. If you want to use the death penalty, that's a separate issue for us to address. But I do not believe that it is 
necessary for cops to take people's lives, so even you, uh, even if they're in the act of doing so, something, because so, that's we have a justice system. So just to clarify, you do not agree with the use of lethal force by law enforcement officers unless it is in the situation of a mass casualty situation. I, I think that with yes, with that, and then a few other exceptions, like if someone has a bomb, right? I think like if if someone has a bomb, and the only way to end it is to shoot them, then probably it's the best thing to do. Okay, so, in, but I think with that the lack of any alternative, if there is a clear danger to a, a number of lives, you do not support. Um, yeah, I mean, if you if you if you and your partner are walking down a street and someone comes up to you and attacks you, or attacks a cop or stabs a cop, right? It, it, the cop should not take that person's life. I mean, we have a justice system to try people, and it's not the right of cops to play judge, jury, and executioner. Well, I mean, with that, you have the issue of police officers who are being shot at having no way to protect themselves. Yes, you do. You have pellet guns. You can use a pellet gun. You can use a taser. So, so, you can use so mace. The I mean, men and women in our law enforcement agencies are going to be out in the field defending us and look at look at northern protecting ireland. our lives and look at northern give ireland. them pellet guns to protect against criminals with real steel firearms look, who are no, trying to kill them. yes because it's been done before look at northern ireland look at northern ireland during the times of the troubles the ulster county the ulster county cops were not armed with with weapons they were armed with pellet guns now Yes, there were some incidents with the pellet guns, but those were excessive uses of force with the pellet guns alone. But they used pellet guns as a deterrent to what were militant uh, uh, members of the IRA. The idea that you take away a gun from a police officer is not this foreign concept. It is something that has been done before and definitely needs some refining. But I, I stand by my earlier statement that Cops should not be playing judge during executioner unless there is no other choice. In in a situ in a mass shooting situation, there probably is no other choice. In a situation involving a bomb, there's probably no other choice. In a in a general terrorist or situation, there's probably no choice. But a cop that is stabbed on the street or a cop that is beat up on the street or jumped on the street does not need to whip out a forty-five and shoot and put two in someone's chest. And I just think that it's a bit radical for us to say that you need a gun. To kill somebody that beats you with the fist. Never bring a gun to a fist fight because that just overpowers the person with the fists. And again, it's it's why we have a justice system. If cops were playing judge during executioner, why why you know a radical interpretation of that would be why do we have a justice system in the first place? Well, I think we heard some really profound points uh, from sure. everyone on that. In Definitely. the interest of time, I'm going to ask Colin to move on to his issue, which is anti-gangliness in law enforcement. Colin, take it away. So one of the things that we, we're seeing a lot in, in law enforcement is the revamping of gang units to not be like uh, – implying crime control models necessarily uh they, they they are much more interested in like community process and we can look at something like a project eject which is uh eject stands for empower jackson expel crime together uh and this is a uh, comprehensive multidisciplinary approach to tackle gangs which want one it brings together federal state and local law enforcement so you see a sharing of resources and then you also see bringing together community leaders, church leaders, nonprofits, neighborhood associations, businesses, schools, and residents. They're all working towards a common goal because gangs are a common problem that's faced. If, you know, we look to Chicago, the west side and the south side. The people that are leading the fight are against gangs are not necessarily the police, but they are community organizers, 
and religious leaders. And I think that these kinds of programs that try to include both law enforcement and uh, non-law enforcement, uh, people that have sway in a community, have produced results. I mean, this this project, Project Eject, uh, led to the arrest of more than 30 gang members in Jackson. But these weren't just like low-level uh, soldiers. They were actual like leaders of, of you know gangs. And so I think that the, the approach to tackle gangs has to not only tackle the leadership, also to tackle like the systemic issues which force people into gangs, lack of father figures, lack of uh, you know, poverty, um, just looking for a sense of purpose. And I think that anything, whether it's you know, a church, a school, uh, 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 just uh, uh, people that go out in the street and say, hey, you want to go play ball? You know, those kinds of people and organizations can do a lot to ending gang violence um, other than just, uh, you know, uh, police forces. Oh, for sure. And I think that um, as shown here in uh, the empower jackson expel crime together project um it takes multiple levels of not just law enforcement but of just people and communities in general to help stop all of this and i think that's really important because when you have like in the case of chicago and other places a deep-rooted distrust of police officers and other law enforcement agents you have to work with the community the community is the only way that they are going to ever make any headway in combating the uh, the amounts of gang violence and gang activity uh, in these in these communities. So there you go, guys. Just to sum up, we talked about um, police response times. Uh, we talked about police brutality. We talked about gang units. Um, this has been uh, episode two of Three Boys One Pod. This is Colin signing off. This is Ethan signing off. And this is John signing off. Uh, we'll see you next time.